In 2023, sex is escapable. Our society is flooded by it. We see images of sex. We hear advice about sex. We fill in questionnaires about sex. And our newspapers and magazines are full of people making assertions about sex or listing their problems with it. Advertisers use sex to sell things to us. Everything from cars and clothes to holidays and food. And when you become a man of my age, the internet algorithms start assuming you made a little help with sex. So start sending you pop-ups for Viagra and Tinder. Talk about sex is everywhere. But sadly, so too is a long stream of broken promises. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s was supposed to bring us liberty and fulfillment. But evidence shows that we have been left with more hang-ups than ever. More teenage pregnancies, more abortions, more sex crimes, more women feeling unsafe to walk the streets. Great damage has also been done to our relationships. The pornography business makes more money worldwide than the car industry. Most of us now know more about the mechanics of an orgasm than ever before. Yet we seemingly know less about relationships. Many of us just cannot get them to last. Public confidence in marriage is at an all-time low. Fewer couples are getting married, more couples are getting divorced, and more are cohabiting before marriage, which statistically leads to more divorces. In our society today, we put all the focus on sex. Yet sex alone will not hold a marriage together. It will not overcome the relentless stress of work pressure and financial difficulty and the troubles of raising children. And sadly, there is now a widespread expectation that your marriage will, sooner or later, fall apart. And then you look for a new one. Marriage is no longer seen as being forever. In summary, then, many people think that they've been set free to enjoy sex with whoever and whenever they want. But what's happened in reality is that we have been enslaved into a web of impoverished relationships, something far less than we had before. The seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. And this is good advice given for our benefit. And it's not just a negative command, it is a positive celebration of all that is good about marriage and the sex that takes place within it. Let's get a few things clear right at the beginning. As Christians, we believe that God is the good creator. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He personally designed us human beings that live within it. And the Genesis account says that completing his work, God looked down at all that he had made and saw that it was very good. Therefore, number one, 
the human body is good. Our hair, our eyes, our lips, our breasts, our hands, our legs, they are all good. God is pleased with them. Now, throughout church history, there has been a temptation to say that God is only interested in spiritual things. You know, those mysterious, untouchable, angelic things about faith. And unfortunately, this was heavily influenced by the ancient Greeks rather than the Bible. The Greeks made this split between body and spirit. The spirit was good. The body was bad. And therefore, we were encouraged to beat the body, to hide the body, to be ashamed about the body. In fact, if you wanted to become a serious Christian, you became a nun or a monk and you hid the body with an itchy habit. But this is utterly wrong. This is not biblical at all. God is pleased with the human body. In Jesus, he even wore one himself. The human body is beautiful and powerful and sensual and it is all good. As Christians, we cannot cordon God off from the daily use of our body. We cannot restrict him to just the inner spiritual life. God wants to be involved in everything. Now, if the human body is good, then that means that sex is good too. As said a moment ago, God sculpted our sexual organs. He programmed how our hormones worked. He decided which bits go where. There is nothing that we get up to in the bedroom that surprises him. In Genesis 1, God made men and women in his image and he saw that they were very good. In Genesis 2, God reveals that he made men and women to be mutual companions, to help and relate to each other. In short, God made us for intimacy. Did you know that human beings are unique in that they are the only species for whom relationship is at the heart of the sexual act rather than just reproduction? We are also the only one of the higher animal species that have intercourse face to face. That is not a coincidence. God designed us to be sexual and to get great pleasure from it. Sex is one of his greatest gifts to us. And all the problems we see in the world with sex are because it's been so badly distorted by human sin, not because it is bad in itself. And if you're ever wondering about how pro-sex God is, open your Bible and read Song of Songs. Despite the laborious efforts of generations of preachers to give this book some sort of spiritual meaning about the church, this is an unashamedly uh, erotic love poem. Two people enjoying the riches of sexuality. And this is a book in the Bible. Now it's undeniable that although sex is good, very good, it's also incredibly powerful. Because the sexual relationship occurs at such a deep personal level, an enormous energy is linked to it. 
sex can blow your mind or it can destroy you. The best illustration I've heard of this is of a fire. A fire in the fireplace is a great thing. It brings light and warmth and joy to the whole home. However, a fire outside of the fireplace burns down the house. It destroys everything in its path. We need to have our fire in the fireplace. We need to have sex in the safe hearth of marriage. So what does the Bible say about marriage? Well, unsurprisingly, it says that marriage is very good too. Let's have a look at the blueprint for it from Genesis 2. This is verse 24. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. From this one verse, we learn that marriage involves three important things. First, leaving. To form a marriage, men and women must leave the familiar surroundings of their families and start something independent. Marriage marks the irrevocable start of a new social and legal unit within the community. Second, uniting. In a marriage, two people commit to each other in every part of their lives. They are personally, emotionally, socially, financially entwined. There really is no area where married people are to hold back from surrendering to one another. And third, becoming one flesh. In the sexual act, there is something far more than just physical contact happening. There is a, a total union to such an extent that the two people concerned are in a real sense no longer individuals. Through sex, our bodies are making a, a uniting promise to one another. Now, every one of these three steps is vital for a marriage to work. Anything less than these, and we fall short of God's good and wise design. And these three steps create an all-embracing and permanent bond. And the Bible calls it a covenant. A covenant is a whole life commitment. Not a, not a short-term pledge with conditions attached. That, that's a contract. This is a covenant. And loving sex is the seal of the marriage covenant. It's the biological and spiritual equivalent of signing the wedding certificate. Now the covenant of marriage provides the best place for the full power of sex to be released. Because we're protected by the security and the love and the commitment. And that's why the Bible always sees sex outside of marriage as dangerous and wrong. Now, of course, our society rejects this. It implies that this teaching, well, it's old-fashioned, it's very restrictive to my personal freedom, therefore it should be ignored. But actually, it's only by binding ourselves to each other with this unbreakable commitment that we find true freedom with sex. 
We can make love to one another without holding anything back. Only within the thick, secure, private walls of a permanent marriage can we become psychologically and spiritually naked. Honestly, to be loved unconditionally, without strings attached, and to love in return is to find true freedom in life. What I'm ultimately trying to say is this. Don't put all the focus on sex, for it will not hold the relationship together on its own. But if we focus on the marriage relationship and the promises that we've made to one another, then the sex will go on getting better and better and better. Having then explored a little bit of what the Bible has to say about this topic, I want to become more practical. First, I'd like us to explore some tips on how to avoid sexual immorality and adultery that the Seventh Commandment warns us about. And then I'd like to look at some tips on how to improve our marriages. And hopefully there'll be something here that we can go home and will be helpful to us in the coming days and weeks. So let's begin then with safeguarding ourselves against adultery. I'd like to suggest that there are three key steps. Guarding our minds, guarding our eyes, and guarding our behaviour. How do we guard our minds against adultery? Well, first of all, we have to refuse to believe the lies. None of us should ever think that adultery couldn't happen to me, because it can. Sex is so powerful, adultery can happen to anyone. In the Bible, it even happened to good King David. Equally, we should reject the lie that adultery is ah, just a bit of fun, isn't it? There's no such thing as a fling without strings attached. And this is because God has designed sex to do something far more than just the physical. It creates an emotional bond. We also need to refuse the lie that sex will solve all our problems. Sex is not the shortcut to excitement or companionship or maturity. And finally, we should also remember that adultery is not just the act of physical intercourse. We should not believe the lie that if we just avoid that bit, everything else is okay. Because a deep, tender relationship with another person who is not your spouse is giving them something that should be reserved for your marriage partner. It is splitting your devotion and leading everyone poorer as a result. Another part of guarding our minds is to actively remember the cost of adultery. If marriage is the commitment of two people where they give each other everything that they have, Adultery smashes those intimate bonds. It shatters trust. It breaks down the walls of privacy. It damages everyone involved. Adultery also leads to an increased uh, transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. It mentally damages children, rocking their security and confidence. It brings a sense of guilt 
that is long-lasting. As Christians, we are also to remember that adultery destroys the witness of marriage into the community. Because the Bible says that every marriage is supposed to be an illustration of God's love to the onlooking world. So we have to think about these things and we have to think about them before the emotion of an affair kicks in. Because when that happens, we won't be able to think clearly at all. So we're to guard our minds by thinking about this issue. Secondly, we are to guard our eyes. In his great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus interpreted this seventh commandment to his disciples by saying this. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Notice how Jesus shifts the focus from the act of sexual intercourse to the desire that precedes it. Clean hands are not enough when it comes to Jesus. We need a clean heart. Now it says in numerous places in the Bible that the eye is the lamp to the body, the window to the heart. What we take in through our eyes goes on to shape us from the inside out. It will always go on to affect our actions. And that is why Jesus states that the look of lustful desire is also adultery. Now, temptation is not wrong in and of itself. Let's be realistic about this. We will all see people and be instantly attracted to them. That is our biology at work. But what we maintain control over is what to do with that temptation. We can all stop a glance, becoming a prolonged gaze. Equally, we can all take action to reduce our exposure to sexual imagery. Pornography plays havoc with our internal desires. It's addictive. It takes us captive and enslaves us. Indeed, it can come to dominate us so much, it doesn't just take the place of our spouses, it can take the place of God as well. In that reading, Jesus suggested radical surgery, the gouging out of our eye. We can do that by putting a block on our computer, cancelling the channel on TV. We can have a trusted covenant partner who gets sent our internet search history each month to keep us accountable. We can get professional counselling if required. Jesus' language is so graphic that the gouging out of an eye that it suggests that there are no lengths too far for us to go to in order to guard our eyes. Finally, we're to guard our behaviour. By that I mean that we are to be aware of how our actions come across to people of the opposite sex. If we are married, we should not flirt. If we are single, we should not flirt. 
unless we have serious intentions and the person we are flirting with is unattached. We are to keep clear boundaries with the opposite sex. For instance, we shouldn't find ourselves regularly out to dinner with the same work colleague or texting them late at night. We know all this stuff, but we can so quickly forget it and ignore it when the lust kicks in. But if we can guard our mind and our eyes and our behaviour, then we will have taken some active steps to protect our marriage and the marriages of others. So we've dealt with the negative warnings. I want to now finish by being much more positive. For those of us privileged to be married, how can we make our marriages even better? Adultery happens because no marriage is perfect. Mine definitely isn't. Just ask Emily. She'll tell you pretty quickly. We must all keep working at our marriages because when we stop doing that, that the temptations begin. I think it really is possible to improve our marriages to the point where adultery is a lot less attractive to us. And in his book, Exploring the Ten Commandments, the evangelist J. John gives five R's that he thinks will lead to a fulfilling marriage. And I'll very briefly share them with you. The first is respect. Love is always built on mutual respect. In Ephesians 5.33 it says, Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Respect in a marriage is vital because the alternative to respect is contempt. And when a person feels contempt from their spouse, it is inevitable that at some point they will find themselves looking into the eyes of another person thinking, I don't get this respect at home. So we're to respect our spouses. We are to respect them as people, respect their talents, respect their interests, respect their views. We're to respect them even when we disagree with them. And of course, that will be shown in the way that we speak and act towards them. The second R is responsibility. If there is a problem in our marriage, we are to take responsibility for fixing it rather than just fixing the blame onto our spouse. So often we spend more time attacking each other than attacking the problem, don't we? Marriages fall down when spouses start stressing their individual rights rather than being committed to their shared responsibilities. It's often better to pick up the blame than to win a petty argument, for example, but not endlessly because no spouse should become a doormat. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2. Do not look to your own interest, but to the interest of the other. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The third R is relate. A recent Gallup poll found that the average husband and wife spend less than 10 minutes a day in conversation with each other. No relationship can survive when starved of oxygen like that. 
We need quality time with each other. We need to invest in each other, to nourish and to cherish each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to listen to each other. So let's start setting time aside for that in our diaries. Regular date nights. Uh, A day away without the children once in a while. These things are vital. Romance. J. John says, if there was more courting in marriage, then there would be far less marriages in court. And he's right. As we explored earlier, God is pro-sex. And marriage is the place to demonstrate that. And our intimacy should be unashamedly erotic. I came across this great quote from Elaine Storkey. A couple in marriage is called to worship God as much by their truthful erotic sex as by their prayers for each other. So there you have it. An encouragement for good sex from one of the leading theologians of our day. And the final R is resolve. It is about determination. As spouses, we have to decide to make our marriages work. We have to choose commitment and faithfulness, honesty and fidelity. And when it comes to struggles in our marriages, we have to tell ourselves we are going to make this work or we will die trying to make it work. If we hit a difficulty, we resolve together to get through it, even if that means seeking outside professional help together. If we increase our respect, take responsibility, make time to relate, delight in romance, and resolve to overcome every obstacle that comes our way, we will have more fulfilling marriages that are much stronger in standing against the temptation of adultery. So the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. And I hope that there's been something helpful and practical there. I want to finish very quickly with three brief encouragements. First, a word to single people out there. I appreciate this sermon may have been a challenge. Not everyone has to be married. And you're not a less of a person if you're not. In the Bible, God seemingly calls some people to be single. Not the majority by any means, but those he does, he equips for that calling. The church has to be there to support single people if they're going to make it through our sex-soaked world. We have to make them just as welcome as we would make a family As a church here on Isla, we want to celebrate and encourage single people, championing all that they have to offer. The second is that God can always forgive. Our sexuality is perhaps the most damaged and broken part of our humanity. And as we've thought about this commandment, you may have become aware of things that you are not proud of. From the long past, even from this week. God always maintains the power to bring healing and wholeness. 
In the gospel, Jesus loved the Samaritan woman who had five husbands and was now living with a man, not her husband. He protected the woman caught in adultery. So if we have become aware of sin listening to this sermon, we do need to leave it. We do need to walk away from it and and choose purity going forwards. But there is enough forgiveness in the cross to save anyone. And as we experience that forgiveness of Jesus for ourselves, may it also soften our hearts so we are more ready to forgive our spouses when they fall down as well. And finally, God wants to help all marriages. He knows that they are difficult at times. He gave us the perfect example to follow in his faithful, unchanging, sacrificial love for us. He's given us the forgiveness of Jesus, which we've just mentioned. And he gives us his Holy Spirit, who is always trying to inspire and empower us into love. So truly, if we are struggling with temptation, if our marriages are up against it, we can pray. Pray together to God. And he promises to help. A few years ago, a national newspaper ran the story after a recent census came out saying, Christians make the best lovers. Of course, that isn't down to us. It's because God set the perfect pattern and is working unstintingly to help us fulfill it. May God help us all with this area of our lives.